Welcome to There Will Be A Test, the podcast that's just like a TED Talk, only if that TED Talk was being heckled by three very funny comedians. I'm your host, Dave Thornton, and as usual, on today's show, we're going to surprise our funny people with three fascinating topics and then test them on what they've learned. So let's meet our hecklers, shall we? First up, we have a returning guest. She's been nominated for Most Outstanding Show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. She co-hosts The Breakfasters each morning on Community Radio Institution Triple R. And last time she was on the show, she was voted most likely to become a Russian dictator. It's our comrade, Geraldine Hickey. How are you? Hello. Hello, everybody. Um, It's good to be back. Thanks so much for having me. Our next comedian is an author and broadcaster who has been a regular presenter on ABC Radio here in Melbourne and has even had an Australian story profile on ABC TV. It's Sammy Shah. Hey, Hey, hey. How are you, mate? I'm getting by, same as everyone else, living in, in Melbourne, um, just playing PlayStation and, uh, and wondering now that everything is open and you can go everywhere and meet everyone, what the hell I'm going to do when I've got no one to meet and nowhere to go? <laughs> nice. Yeah. Now, our final guest is an actor and comedian who is probably best known as one part of the comedy trio, Auntie Donna. For listeners, he's the one with the uh, strawberry blonde hair. <laughs> the trio have just announced their very own Netflix series, which is huge. It's Broden Kelly. What a pleasure it is to Woo. be here on the podcast. Uh, yes, we ha- we are a Netflix series. Can you believe it? We have two failed pilots before this one. The first one was at ABC. We made a pilot and it was just viciously rejected. Um, I'm not saying it was because Dave Thornton was in it as the cameo, <laughs> but all I know is... Dave Thornton is not in the Netflix series and he is in the failed pilot. <laughs> but it's great to be here, going to celebrate with a moon dog frothy and have a great time because they're the best beer with the best podcast, in my opinion. <laughs> on that positive note, we might as well kick on with the show. <laughs> so pay attention throughout because, as the title of the show suggests, there will be a test. Just before we meet our first expert, a quick word from the supporters of this podcast. There is no doubt that Moondog's new Fizzer alcoholic seltzers are the perfect drink for summer. If you haven't tried Moondog's Fizzer yet, then you are in for a treat. Think alcoholic bubbly water with bursts of all natural fruit flavours and stuff all sugar. Yeah, I know. And all this in a can. There are four Fizzer flavours like Tropical Crush, Straubs and Cream, Piney Limey and Coco Mango. So if you don't like one of those, there's something wrong with it. So get your hands on a refreshing, fruity Fizzer this summer. Head to fizzer.com.au to find your local stockist, or of course you can order it online. Over 18s only, drink responsibly. So guys, please welcome master paint maker, David Coles. How great. Thanks, Dave. Cheers. Now, David, master paint maker. What makes you a master paint maker? Um, the fact that I've spent my whole life dedicated to the making of oil paints for artists, um, having worked for and learned a lot of my trade from one of the oldest paint making firms in the world. So, so your stuff, David, is not available in Kmart. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. No, <laughs> right. no, no not, not in Kmart. No, not in a, not in a set of twenty-four for five dollars. No. Uh, <laughs> I like to draw and paint as well, but my problem is I'm monochromatic. Like I only do black and white because I have no sense of color. So <laughs> whenever I, whenever I'm like confronted with good quality oil paints, I go for the black one and the white one, and I leave. <laughs> and so, yeah, this is a bit wasted on me in terms of actually you know, my knowledge of colour and stuff. But yeah, like my question is, David, could you draw? Yeah, yeah. I went to art school because I had a facility took for it. And I went to art school and I left art school and was a professional artist. Pretty tough life, mind you. Um, yeah. there's, no, there's no fame and fortune in it. As um, any of you know in the creative arts, it's tough. It's tough gig. Um, and it was because I was working at art school quite a traditional art school, and we had to make our materials from scratch. It's very unusual. This is in the 80s. 1880s? Brutal. <laughs> <laughs> you know how, old, how old do I look, Sam? <laughs> I'm looking pretty damn good. I went to art school in the 90s and we bought stuff from the shop. What happened in 10 years? It was a very particular art school that just down at Bristol in the UK, and they, it was a major part of their... 
um, structure was that you understand the materials by making them yourselves. Not everything, but we were certainly encouraged and we were playing around with materials that hadn't been used for 100 years or a couple of hundred years or even a thousand years, purely because we were curious. That was it. And from there, I just fell in love with the actual making of materials. I think I became more interested in that than the actual making of painting. I ran out of things to say with my painting. It's a never-ending story, making paint. Yeah. But throughout history, colours haven't been that accessible, have they, David? No, no, they haven't. Some, uh, the, the, the history of, of making art, if you like, uh, the history of colours is the history of, man, of humankind. As we developed, uh, became more, uh, became cleverer in industry, in science or proto-science, Basically, we slowly increased our colours. We found things also by travel. Suddenly, trade routes opened up and colours ended up in Europe or wherever you were in the world from another part of the world. And the most famous for me would be uh, Genuine Ultramarine, which is the, be- the beautiful deep blue that comes from the uh, mineral lapis lazuli, which is being mined from this one mine in the northern mountains of Afghanistan for the last 6,000 years. It's the blue that was used in the funeral cask of Tutankhamun. It was the, uh, the blue throughout the whole of the Renaissance. And extracting the actual genuine ultramarine from this blue mineral was very time-consuming and you got very small yield. In the Renaissance, it was worth more by weight than gold. In fact, it still is worth more more than gold. gold wow. Because it's so difficult to extract. And because that colour was so expensive, you needed a patron. As an artist, you needed a patron, a patron with very deep pockets, which really basically meant the church, the Roman Catholic Church. You're saying it's worth more than gold? Yeah. Because yeah. I've got like, down in my storage cage, I've got like two kilos worth of it. So should I be taking that to a cash <laughs> You should be taking it to a vault. You should be locking it away. Um, you should be sort of thinking about your superannuation, maybe, you know, a third. That's fantastic. Yeah, because I just picked it up at a garage sale like two years ago. They just had, they had buckets of it and I was, I, was, I was like, may as well. That's fantastic news. Dave, do you reckon he could just cut it up with some cobalt blue or something and, you know... <laughs> Shell it out. You get 300 a bag for that. That'd be great. You know, then going in the history of colour is the history of peep, of charlatans, and, you know, it's just, you know, we'll put in some uh, brick dust, we'll put in some sawdust, and we'll pad it out. Oh, they, they were, did. They were, they were all these tests that artists and artisans had to be able to test if they were using, they were getting the real deal. So, wow. um, yeah, we've never, we've always been cropped. Can't you just take a sample of it down to mitre 10 and then put it yeah. on the paint <laughs> thing, and then they'll just. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Of course you can. Gumboot blue. That's it. And then That's run across it. the Bunnings and get it for 10% cheaper. We can yeah. run the game, Jess. <laughs> the thing about a colour like ultramarine blue, because it's so beautiful and it's a beautiful clear blue, um, that the French government in the, in the early 19th century set up a competition and chemists developed a complete uh, copy of it but made synthetically so when you go to an art shop now and you buy a tube of ultramarine blue it's made synthetically it's chemically identical weirdly enough to the actual blue coming out of the mineral but it's made for about a hundredth or a thousandth of the price now i've got some colors in front of me here david and i'm yep. going to run through them and could you explain to me how these were created especially initially i'm wow. sure they've been synthesized now but the first cab off the rank this one <laughs> It feels a little Game of Thronesy, to be honest. It's yeah. Tyrian purple, which I'm hoping means you don't get that colour from pummeling a short-statured actor until no. it's very <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Watch out. Yes, exactly. No. Um, Tyrian purple, weirdly enough, not Tyrian. So there we are. That gives the game uh, a little thank bit. You. How embarrassing. Oh, my I'm God. Really sorry I'm, about sorry, that. I'm really sorry, sorry about that. I'm really sorry about that. We all had to see that. I'm, I'm not going to the Derwent Convention any time soon. This is, <laughs> I've been shamed out of that. <laughs> So it's called Tyrian Purple because it was being produced originally in the city of Tyre, which is in modern-day Lebanon, uh, what was then called in the ancient world Phoenicia, which actually means land of purple because they were producing this one colour. It comes from a predatory sea snail, tiny little sea snail that actually um, scavengers tries to kill other snails around it in the, in the Mediterranean, and it gives up a drop, one drop of dye. And per snail? Per snail. So that you need 250,000, that's a quarter of a million of these snails to make 30 mil of dye. That's a massacre. That is a massacre. And you could imagine the stench from all of those mm. rot. You know, all they're doing is they crush it, squeeze out the one drop, chuck the rest. They're not going to do anything with that. Wow. Drop of dye comes out and it's completely clear. 
And it's not until it gets exposed to air and it turns then to a pale yellow and then to a deep crimson violet. And this was completely and utterly sought after by the imperial, uh, by the emperors of, of imperial Rome, and to the point where they were, you know, basically sumptuary laws, which was that only certain people were allowed to wear it, basically senators and, of course, the emperors themselves. And at certain times, certain uh, emperors would be very strict. And if you were caught hoarding in your home uh, textiles, garments with some purple on it, you could lose your home, your title, even your life. Oh, well, well yeah. certainly so, the snail's home, yeah. So in Rome, when they said someone had to, like, the emperor donned the purple, you became the emperor by donning the purple. Correct, that's, that's it. That's the purple they were using. That's it, that's right, exactly, yes. Whoa. That's where it came from, came from, exactly, yeah. It was also known as being born to the purple, and again, being born to be the emperor, absolutely. So this city of Tyre, um, is, that, is, that a, is that, what's the geography like there? What's, what kind of world, land is it? It's a coastal city in Lebanon. So it's a flat tyre kind of, that area? Yeah! yeah. (laughs) Netflix special is coming out very soon, guys. (laughs) Auntie Donna, more of that stuff. Uh, The next colour, David, lead white. Yeah, so lead white, um, I mean, it was most important white for uh, over 2,000 years because basically it was the only real white. You could get white from chalks, but really it was from this, this product. Um, the problem is, of course, lead is ridiculously poisonous. So what we would do, um, and I've done it myself just because I was curious, um, you take sheets of dull grey lead and you uh, put them together uh, with uh, vinegar and fresh, warm, hot manure. And the heat from the manure, which produces carbon dioxide right. and the, the vapours from the vinegar, they basically rust the lead and you get this white crust that appears on top. And this is a pigment and it's called lead white, flake white, as it's sometimes called. And it was the most important white. The problem was, yeah, it never, once it gets into your system, it's extremely difficult to leave. And people basically accumulated lead and they would suffer horribly and eventually die from lead poisoning. Why, why manure as well in this... Well, basically, a lot and it had to be it had to be fresh, as fresh as possible. So it was lovely, steaming hot manure. <laughs> so it had a lot of heat, and the heat's important because it made the acetic acid, the vinegar, it made it give off a vapor, so it vaporized rather than just sat there. Wow. And also, it produced carbon dioxide, which is part of the whole process. It was a mucky business. <clears throat> and cow manure or horse manure? Cow, oh. cow or horse manure? I think, from what I understand, it was nearly always cow manure. Um, and they tried to do, they would often do it in the summer months because it also meant everything was even more hot and steamy. That's much better for it. And they would normally stack up the, the, the pots where they would put this all together and close them in a shed for three months, open the shed, and there we are. They've got all these pots full of basically corroded lead, which have now turned into this white sort of... And cows with lead poisoning. Well, the cows luckily weren't kept kept anywhere near them. It was oh, right. Big, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. Just, the biggest <laughs> issue was that this was the, the most important white that we could use um, for hundreds and hundreds. As I said, really, it was in continuous production for 2,000 years. And it was the workers, the people making the lead white. They will be washing it, grinding it down, etc. And giant factories... Is the process of creation, like, the second stage in human inquisitiveness? Like, stage one is we find something, we're like, can I eat it? Yeah. And then when that doesn't work out, then stage two is like, can I paint with it? And then stage two would be, can I have sex with it? But, like, you know, is stage two <laughs> painting? Communication. We all want to communicate, don't we? Whether it's verbally or, or visually. It's, a, it's, it's, it's quite, it's like... Um, you go to the, see the caves in Lascaux in France or you see the rock painting up north in, in Kakadu. When you see those, those handprints, you see those handprints, and they spray liquid pigment around the hand, the hand becomes a stencil. It's like, it's like a, a, a voice from the past saying, I was here. I mean, yeah, according to that progress, Sammy, I guess they're like, can I make love to that pile of cow manure and lead? Nah, <laughs> just put it on your walls maybe, mate. Let's I just think back on that one. I thought someone tried it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now the next colour, cochineal. So there's always a lot, so the, the stories I've been telling you, there seems to be a lot of death involved, whether it's death of something or death for, for people using it. 
With this one, the death of enormous amounts of a little insect, a little small-scale insect that lives on cacti coming from Mexico and Peru. And it's called the cochineal, which actually in Spanish means louse. And really it is a little kind of tiny little bug, really small, like around about three, four millimeters uh, in length. So the color that comes from these little scale insects is chyminic acid, which is inside its body. We dry the uh, little bugs and then we grind them up and extract the strongest crimson ever known to mankind, to humankind. And the Aztecs and Incas treasured it incredibly. So when the uh, Spanish conquistadors invaded Mexico, they went to the markets and found these incredible yarns of deep crimson, took it back to Spain, and it was a sensation. The whole of the European court suddenly took over, took on this actual colour. It was, in fact, for the Spanish, after gold and silver, the third most uh, lucrative export they had from the conquered uh, lands of Mexico. Wow. Yeah, tiny little insect. But, I mean, again, just a little bit like the Tyrian purple. Thousands upon thousands. There's about 14,000 of these little insects are needed to make 100 grams of the carmine pigment, um, which is the pigment that can be made from the dye. Um, It's mostly used in foods and drinks. That's where you'll mostly find it now. Campari, the beautiful deep colour of Campari. Cochineal. Cochineal. There you go. Also used uh, to colour meats. Uh, make them a bit rarer. You know what I mean? So it's got a food number. It's easy enough to find out if it's been included. It most, you know, it's it's very not used that much, but it's also very important in cosmetics because it's one of the very few colorants that could come into contact with your lips. And so it's still for all those most of those crimson lipsticks that um, you know that someone wants to wear. You're going to find that it's actually based on cochineal on carmine. Oh, and dead bugs. That sounds romantic. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, very romantic, yes. We've almost run out of time, David. There was one more colour that I just wanted to ask you about just briefly because it sounds quite nice, mummy brown. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it, it is what it, what it sounds like. It was a brown colour coming from basically ground-up mummified animals and humans. I actually didn't think that oh. was it. I thought it was something quite cute. Oh, I wish. Yeah, no, it's pretty gross. It's pretty grim. So literally for hundreds of years, we, uh, the French and the British, when they had invaded uh, Egypt, they would loot the, the tombs and they would take this material back. Um, and it was used partly as a medicine and it was used partly as a colour. Wow. So I think what we've ascertained from you is that death and destruction yes. can fill the full palette. <laughs> yes. of- horrible, horrible colour histories, absolutely. <laughs> Mate, thank you for your time. I can see by some of the uh, very interested and slightly confused looks on our comedians that they've learnt a lot. So we really appreciate you dropping down. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Cheers. Our second expert hails from the University of Melbourne. It is Professor of Astrophysics, Rachel Webster. How are you, Rachel? Yes. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry. Broden's pretty fired up about this. Yeah, this is great, great, very good. Astrophysics, so we're talking all about space. Have you narrowed it down to a particular area we'll be waxing lyrical about? Uh, Well, I think today we're going to talk about Pluto. Ah, Pluto, the, uh, from memory, former planet? Former planet indeed, yes. Let's just get the, uh, like if it was on a dating site, (laughs) let's give all the logistics of Pluto. Like how big is it compared to Earth? How far away from the sun? Okay, well, it's a lot smaller than Earth, Um, about 1% of the mass of Earth, so it's really quite small. Mm. It it orbits obviously around the sun, but it's about 40 times further away. And uh, I guess it takes about 250 years to go around the sun, so quite a long time. (laughs) So we've just been in a six-month lockdown here in Melbourne <laughs> for one year. Is that off the top of my head about 200-odd years of lockdown? <laughs> Indeed. I would hazard a guess it's been around since the dawn of time, but when did humans know that Pluto existed? Um, well, we discovered it. Uh, you know, the first human ostensibly laid eyes on it about 90 years ago, so 1930. Uh, who was that? So that was a chap called... Claude Tombaugh, um, and he was hired as an astronomer in the Lowell Observatory in uh, Arizona. Ah, was he, I mean, was he looking for it? I guess when you're staring out to space, you're looking for planets. Is that the main thing? 
<laughs> well, in, in fact, he was hired to try and find it, but it's a much longer story than that. There had been a number of people who had predicted that there would be another planet in the solar system. So, you know, there are eight before you get to Pluto, and then they predicted that there'd be a ninth. Uh, and so he was explicitly hired to go and look for it. Uh, why? How come? Like, why would you? Why? Where, where did that prediction come from? Why would they go? Oh, eight's not enough. Or? <laughs> it's an even number. Doesn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all about Newton, right? And so Newton's law of gravity tells you how things are going to uh, move in the solar system. But if they move differently uh, from what you predict, uh, then yep. you might hypothesise that there was something else there to move it. Um, and so that's what they had suggested. So it's all about Newton, uh, you just mentioned, Rachel. So it's similar to Channel 9 in the uh, 1970s. It's all about Bert Newton. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Now, what does it take for a planet to lose its planet status? Well, to be, or like, to be cancelled? Does, does it say something bad in the media? So it loses <laughs> Cancel culture. Yeah. <laughs> what happened was that they discovered another object that they thought was bigger than Pluto. And so, you know, there was this sort of existential crisis. You know, should we add another planet to the solar system or should we knock out the guy that's the problem? Um, <laughs> that was basically um, right. the dilemma. And what's, what's Pluto made of? Is it gas or rock or...? A little bit of both. Um, um, mostly made of rock, so silicon uh, sort of stuff, you know, like sand, uh, but it's also got a lot of water, we think. Water? Isn't within, is there life? I mean, no. Not that we know of. We, we would have heard, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> These yeah, aliens, I, Dave. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's just been demoted. Maybe their feelings are hurt. They're like, well, you know what? If we're, we're not part of your solar system, we're not hanging out. <laughs> it could have life. Um, but, you know, the experiment you'd have to do to figure that out is a lot more sophisticated than anything we've done so far. So don't know. So we downgraded it from a planet to what? To a meteorite? To what? Like, what, what, how, how did we insult it? <laughs> we, we actually created a new class of object called dwarf planets. Um, and oh, then we made... used to do that in school where she'd make a new class for just the really dumb students. And, <laughs> yeah. and then we made it the prototype. So we said, look, you can be really important in this new class, right? Um, so you're the number one in the class of dwarf planets. Okay. So, right, you're the top of the bottom. <laughs> That's right. So who demoted it? Well, there's this body called the... In, um, International Astronomical Unit, which, which is the sort of um, professional body for astronomers worldwide, and they meet every three years, and uh, they have the say over, you know, how you define these things. How unanimous was that de demotion? Because, you know, when you ask the general public, like, there is still, there are people who'd be like, now nah, I, I grew up learning Pluto was a planet, and I'll always call Pluto a planet. Are there astrophysicists who are of the same ilk? Look, it was pretty funny, actually. Um, I was actually quite involved in the process and uh, there was... It was you! <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it was a democratic vote in the end. <laughs> but, uh, so they had a, an expert committee who ha had to look at the problem and come up with a recommendation and they recommended that Pluto would stay. And we went off to this General Assembly of the International Astronomical Union took a vote on the first day and the, and the astronomers all said, nah, it's not going to work. Wow. So over two weeks, wow. we rewrote what was going to happen to Pluto. Did the Pluto get to campaign? I mean, did it get, you know, some TV time to go up against maybe Neptune and say, look, I, I believe I should be here. I don't know what he's doing, but I'm representing... <laughs> there, were, there, there were actually a few people who were very passionate about keeping Pluto uh, as, as a planet, I have to say. But so you weren't one of them? I wasn't one of them, no, mm. no. Um, you've got to be rational about these things. <laughs> <laughs> this is a slight divergence, but you, you, you teach at Melbourne University, is that correct? Yeah, that's in what level of high school entry do I need to have to be able to listen to this level of incredibly interesting stuff what's the how can i come to your course i guess is what's the prerequisites so broden's failed in year nine what he's asking is can he go into <laughs> yeah. your lecture hall well you know 
the first class we teach is at first year uni level, so anybody can come along and you'd be very welcome. Um, the second point is that we don't take um, attendance, so you can come anyway, even if you're not at Melbourne Uni. But don't. <laughs> <laughs> to be yeah. honest, I've done that before, gone into other lectures. They don't. There's no check. They don't check it. Yeah. Have you, Jess? What did you learn? Yeah, I went into a nursing class. I was getting a lift home off someone at uni and they had one more class, so I just went in. I asked questions and everything. (laughs) We're just happy if somebody comes, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Can we go back to before the vote? Um, Did you convince anyone to vote another way? Were you like... (laughs) You know, bit of oh, what are you, well, you going to vote? Oh, as no, it's not a planet. So, so I was actually for my sins. I was drafted as part of the committee that actually drafted the resolution that everybody voted on. And in order to ensure that we would actually get a positive vote, we had about I think we had about five or six town hall meetings before we actually put it to the vote. So we would. You know, almost every day, every other day, we would call all the astronomers together and hundreds would turn up, right, because there's about, it's usually two or 3,000 at these meetings. And then we would say, look, this is the idea we've had. What do you think of this? And people would say, nah, you can't do that. No, that's not good enough. And we'd go away again and we'd wordsmith it again and then we'd go back a couple of days later and so on and so forth. So it was a, it was a very tense and stressful and quite emotional process. Mm. Were you wearing a cap while you're promoting all this, like make Pluto crap again or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> Did you expect it to be as big an issue as it turned out to be? I mean, you know, the fact that it's a massive thing in pop culture and, and people still talk about this and, and argue about it. So, so so the committee that had to do this work, work was called the Resolutions Committee of um, the IAU, and it is the most boring committee <laughs> that could ever possibly be on. And um, and I only just agreed to do it, but when when this resolution came through, I knew it was going to be, you know, big and indeed it was i mean rachel because there's three criteria is there not for a planet to exist and it didn't meet that criteria well it met it met the first two of the criteria but not the third one so um so the first one is that you have to to be a planet this is you have to orbit around the sun and it obviously does that big kick yep. yep and then the second one was that it had to be massive enough so that it, it actually had a round shape um so um you know, if, if you're not very massive, you can kind of be peanut-shaped. Um, so it also passed that. Um, <laughs> it got a tick on that one. But the third one was, it, it, which is a sort of a bit weird, but it has to have cleared out the neighbourhood around its orbit. So, in other words, it has to um, be massive enough to get rid of all the crap um, that was around from the formation of the solar system, and it failed that one. So there are, in fact a whole bunch of other objects, and they're called plutoids, um, which orbit more or less in the same um, part of the solar system as Pluto. How is a plutoid different to, like, a Pluto moon? Uh, So a Pluto moon actually orbits around Pluto, whereas Uh a plutoid orbits around the sun, uh, Uh but it's in the same sort of orbit. So, you know, basically um, uh, it takes about the same time to go around the sun. Uh, well, Rachel, thank you so much. It looks like you're going to see us for one of your lectures next year. When they can finally open it up, yeah. we're going to be sitting there heckling you about, bring Pluto back. So I hope that's fine with you. Please come. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, interesting. Man, so interesting. You convinced us. We were, we were still on Pluto's side, but now, <laughs> hell with Pluto. That planet deserves what it got. <laughs> Second Pluto. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, thanks so much for spending some time with us. See you later. Bye. Please welcome from the University of Melbourne as well, this time from the School of Culture and Communication, it's Professor Ken Gelder. G'day, Ken. Oh, hello. You're here talking about... Well, I'm talking, I'm talking about vampires. Nice. If we're talking about uh, blood-sucking humans, real estate agents. Hey. No, um Lawyers. Thank you. Lawyers. There we go. Now, first and foremost, you work in the area of culture and communication. Why haven't myself or any of the comedians been invited down to one of your lectures? I feel that we both communicate and are cultured, Ken. What's going on? <laughs> um, 
Oh, you put me on the spot. Why haven't you been invited? <laughs> well, you, uh, you got to enroll, and that would cost you a lot of money, actually, mm. these days, and even more next year. Oh, uh, yeah. Ken, okay. We've just been told by another department of your university that we can just walk into classes and no one checks. <laughs> so is that the same in your department? No, you have. You, uh, uh, of course, it's all um, online now and Zoom, just like this um, meeting now. You, so you have to be invited in. Uh, so mm. that's more difficult. Now, Ken, well, vampires. Now, if I... Actually, I can throw this out to the comedians. Some of the tropes of a vampire. What do you guys think? We're talking pale sexy. fangs. Sexy? Okay. Is that? Sammy? Yeah. Um, just immortal and really, really pale skin. Yeah. Jez? Uh, can't, no reflection and um, can't, is glitters in the sun. There you go. So these are the kind of cliched tropes of a vampire, but... Have they always been like that? You know, originally, I mean, vampires go back a very long way. They're ancient uh, figures and they go right back to Lilith. You couldn't really actually go any further back than Lilith, who uh, people might know was the first wife of Adam before Eve. So people kind of forget that Adam had a partner before Eve. Wait, Ken, Ken I did not know that. I did religious education all through primary school yeah. um, and I had never heard of the divorcee of Adam. No, no, no. It's a, well, it's a, it's a, it's an esoteric, you know, buried um, uh, uh, piece of mythology. It really comes out of Hebrew folklore and uh, goes a long way back. And in you know Hebrew mythology, Lilith is this figure, and she wasn't subservient to Adam. So they kind of divorced or broke up, and she became monstrous, and she's cast as an insatiable, um, you know, predatory. Woman wasn't the the belief that it was because she wanted to be when they were having sex she wanted to be on top and not like that's actually what I read in the, some of the work in in Hebrew mythology which is that and that's why Adam was like oh she wants to be my equal she's yeah. not yeah yeah you haven't been reading Hebrew mythology though have you really no <laughs> I think he's been reading other stuff to be honest with the context of that story I mean the fan sites you know. <laughs> <laughs> So how does how do vampires go from these female figures to Bram Stoker writing about you know Vlad Dracul and like this yeah. man from Romania? Well, um, uh, Dracula, that novel by Bram Stoker comes a bit late in the day, really, so eighteen nineties, and it turns to Eastern Europe and it does something quite different with the vampire. So it, it turns to a man, of course, and it, it ties that figure to the figure of the Eastern European Jew. It's very anti-Semitic. So that Dracula in that novel has a, you know, hooked nose and he hoards money and sort of tied to money lending and all that kind of stuff. And, and migration is really important for the vampire. Vampire becomes a migratory figure, usually going from the east to the west. So Dracula, if people remember the story or in the films of Dracula, he's usually migrating to London and buying real estate property up in London. So he's, he's, a, he's an immigrant. He's actually a kind of asylum seeker figure and that that's a different genealogy wow so you're going from that that's when the modern idea of a vampire really comes into existence because yeah. i feel throughout the 20th century it's been a similar figure in any kind of media and books in movies it's always the same this debonair kind of uh a man who seems to seduce his victims uh quite charming uh, mm. seems to have to be honest a really good time of it. Uh, seems to be rocking out at night time, bringing everyone into the undead. <laughs> well, uh, yes, later on Dracula gets to be recast as a, you know, charming, as a charming figure and very seductive. But seduction is often taken in, in Bram Stoker's novel and is taken to be a bit of a negative thing. Like if you get seduced, you know, that's not good. And the forces of seduction are also a bit negative and a bit dark. And to be seduced by an immigrant, by someone who recently arrives and actually wasn't invited, you know that folklore about you have to invite the vampire in, but the vampire arrives uninvited, like immigrants and asylum seekers and so on, and is already in. And to be seduced by that figure, that has a sort of dark narrative about it as well. Can I ask about the garlic? And when garlic came into... The he hates and and cross for that matter. The two he, he hates garlic and he hates crosses. Yeah. Where did that come from? That's European folklore again. And the the other narrative about the vampire is that when there's a plague, and we would know this, you know, very well now. Um, when there is a plague, uh, you have to make sure that the dead stay dead. 
And so there's a folklore that builds up around that. You have to, you know, you put a brick into the mouth of the dead. Uh, 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 you put them under stone. Uh, you might put a stake through their heart and you might put garlic and various other kinds of things around them as well uh, to produce uh, um, something that disinfects the plague, you know, for that corpse so that that corpse is not going to rise up again and, you know, continue to infect people. So, and the view that the net, the vampire brings the plague, which it, you know, it uh, does, is a very common one, of course, coming out of that, that kind of European folklore. Uh, when did the blood drinking come in, you know, with vampires? Drinking blood and blood transfusion is such a big part of that story. Yeah. When did that get introduced? Well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a version. It's a slightly more erotic, uh, you know, version of cannibalism, really. And, and it is also to do, in any case, with the corpse being drained of blood and then needing to constantly, you know, restock so that you have to, you know, keep feeding because, you know, corpses don't produce blood and blood doesn't flow and you have to keep on. And in fact, it doesn't matter how much blood vampires tend to drink, especially if you're thinking of the 19th century Bram Stoker vampire. It doesn't matter how much blood they drink. They still don't have any blood in their body. Do you know what I mean? So they just have to keep, which makes them insatiable. They keep on, um, you know, drinking and drinking and drinking and it doesn't make any difference. You know, they're still bloodless. I realise it's really morphed, hasn't it? Because during the 20th century, there was that Dracula figure in Transylvania. He's up in a castle. Now it's moved into the twilight realm. We, well, most people, and I guess most teenage girls, hope that Robert Pattinson's living next door. I mean, how is it just now that vampires have become this, oh, yeah, you know, they walk amongst us. They're having a good time. Just keep them at arm's length. When the vampire migrates and he always or she always migrates, they have to blend in. So you, you, you're not supposed to notice them, actually. So, so they can live next door and you don't recognise the, what they are. You know, they become your neighbours when you least expect it, really. is really important, I think. Well, probably because the coffin turned up as a flat pack, so you can't really figure <laughs> out exactly what's happening, you know? Yes, you're supposed to be duped, in any case, by the vampires. Very strong immigrant narrative. Like, we, you know, the, the xenophobic narrative is we don't want uh, immigrants because they dupe us. They take, our, you know, they, they take over. As the obvious vampire in the room right now, <laughs> um, I just want to say this is all true. And um, yeah, <laughs> um, in popular culture, in you know the Twilight films and the True Bl- and True Blood, and I used to I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and so on. The vampire also um, has this great, rom- you know, dark romantic potential. And that's been very important to popular culture. And partly because the vampire is also associated with dark pleasures and, you know, nocturnal pleasures. And um, uh, I sometimes use the word jouissance. You know, jouissance is a... Oh, is hello. A, yeah, exactly. Sorry to be a bit like um, a francophone here, but um, <laughs> that it, it, it's, it's something more than pleasure. It's like, ex, you know, ecstasy. So the embrace of the vampire becomes this ecstatic produces this ecstatic, uh, uh, intimate experience that no, no one else can give you. And that sense that the vampire should be a long way away, but actually comes so close to you to produce this orgasmic, ecstatic experience is, is something a lot of, you know, vampire films and so on would really trade on. Yeah, because you want to juice your brains out, don't you? Like, you really <laughs> want to get involved. That's <laughs> great. We don't have enough juissance. And during the pandemic, there was no juissance. <laughs> well, maybe self-juissance. But, um, but, Ken, now it seems like there were these shadowy figures before. Now it's like they're living a happy life. Like, you meet so many in, in, in modern context. It's almost like, oh, and they seem to just be getting around, but they just need the odd body now to suck the blood out of them. Like, are they yeah, happy? How do you make vampires scary again? Well, that, that's a very good question. There is, you know, this view that vampires, you know, especially after Twilight, which um, uh, actually put a hold on jouissance. It said no sex, no jouissance, no pleasure, not until we get married. And so, you know, very sort of Christian, uh, you yeah. know, white boy kind of vampire stuff. And But um, <laughs> no, I think vampires are unhappy in all, all sorts of ways in cinema and television. You know, they're very melancholic characters. They are often you get that narrative that says vampires have lived too long and seen too much and they just want to die. And, and, and so you get that sense that, you know, we thought immortality was a really good thing and it turns out to be, you know, like, um, like 50 more years of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite vampire in literature and, and movies and all that stuff? Is it the Anne Rice stuff? Is it, is it Bram Stoker? Is it Buffy? Like, which, is, you know, which one? I, I was very fond of Buffy and I, I did like the early Anne Rice novels and that film interview with the vampires is a really good film. 
And, you know, there's a very good Australian vampire film called Daybreakers, which I like, would really strongly recommend. It's a beautiful, crazy, you know, f- film that sees Australia uh, overrun like too many vampires and not enough humans is the sort of logic of Daybreakers. And that, that, that's, that sense of vampires have been so successful and they've spread the plague so successfully that everyone is now a vampire. And if everyone's a vampire, it's a big problem for vampires. To, who, you know, so it's about, it's, a, it's an ecological, futuristic, apocalyptic thing that says there's no food sources, actually no uh, blood source or no water, really, the equivalent of water any, anymore. We're drying, vampires are literally drying up. Oh, Ken, thank you so much for that, mate. That was really interesting because not only was it great to hear about vampires in modern culture, it was good to put us back in our place and we thought we could get a free tertiary education. So <laughs> we won't be jumping on your Zoom anytime soon unless you give us the password. But thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. So we've heard from all of our experts. Now it's time for the test. Are we feeling confident? Jess, this is your second go around. Are you feeling confident? Um, yeah, I'm pumped. <laughs> I remember everything. <laughs> Broden? I remember nothing and I'm going to lose. I'm going to come last. But I'm going to have a great time, just like high school. Yeah, that's <laughs> the most important part. Do you know what that sounds like, Broden? It sounds like you're setting your expectations low. So yeah. I'm going to win, Jess. Yeah. I'm going to win. Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm hearing. Yeah. Sammy, how about you? I'm trying to remember what the first topic was. So I'm at that level of, oh, my God. <laughs> well, not to intimidate you guys, but Jez won last time. So she's on a mm. hot streak. All right. Mm. Hey, cool. First question. What kind of blue is one of the most expensive colours in the world today? Broden. Yes, Broden? Tyrrhenian. No, it is not that. Sammy, Geraldine, do you know what it was, if you remember? Colbert blue. No, um... It, oh, it oh. was. It's, I think, more expensive than gold. Yeah, it, it was the one from South America, though, right? Like, not the one from Tyre. That one was purple. It wasn't Tyre, that's right. It wasn't Tyre. get it? No. Give me oh, the was, point, yeah, Dave. Exactly. They don't know. No, yeah. we don't know. Okay, it was nah. Ultramarine. That was yeah. the one. Okay. Guys, what was the name of the first vampire, Adam's first wife? Broden. Oh, Broden. Not Broden, but it was Lilith. That's right. It was Lilith, which mm. is a fun fact. This is my own research. That's why uh, the professor on Cheers, that's why his wife's name was Lilith. Yeah, Lilith, Frasier. Why did you call him the professor from Cheers? He has his own show called Frasier. I know. I was searching for his name as well. I was so happy I'd got the information in my head and then the rest of the stuff. Why did you do that? It, just left the professor my brain. From, the professor from Cheers? Yeah, close enough, mate. His show's called Frasier. All right, anyway. I can't wait to refer to you, Broden, as the guy from that podcast that I did. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good with facts, guys. I'm real good with facts. (laughs) What plant does the bug that produces a cochineal live on? Broden. Cochineal, I should say. Jeez, I'm really on fire. That was my answer. (laughs) My answer was cochineal. (laughs) No, that was just, that was me stuffing up another word. Uh, Geraldine? Yes. Would it like a, a seaweed? No. Sammy? It was in Mexico. Oh, Geraldine. Oh, you've already, you've already answered Geraldine. Well, Sammy? you didn't. Sammy, cactus. That's oh, right. You it put on cactus. your Sammy. Great one. All right, I'm back in. <laughs> you said it wrong and that put me off. Sorry, guys. <laughs> what are the three criteria that defines a planet? Sammy. Sammy. Has to be round, like big enough to be round. Correct. Has to orbit the sun Correct. and has to clear the debris from its path, like uh, sweeping uh, all well the small things. Very good, Sammy. I remembered. I remembered something. It <laughs> cleared its neighborhood. Yeah. An interesting turn of phrase. Yeah. Yeah. It was good in a pandemic, socially distant. <laughs> yeah. Clear the path. In Bram Stoker's novel, what did Dracula go to England for? To Geraldine. Yep. Just to blend in. <laughs> no, that wasn't it. I mean, property purchase? Yes, real estate. That is exactly Everything. right. Yeah, yeah. I think he played okay. a game of Monopoly. It's like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It was Mayfair. Who doesn't right, want, you know, Marley Ball? What are the factors 
required to make lead white. Geraldine. Yes. We're talking lead white. Correct. So lead, uh, fresh manure, cow manure is preferred. Horse manure can also be used. Correct. And um, some sort of like um, carbon monoxide maybe. No, because that's in the manure. Um, Time. Time is also in there. So we've got lead, we've got manure. It obviously takes time, three months. Uh, There's also another process and another ingredient. Broden, wasn't there like an alcohol or something like that or like a a terps? Terps? (laughs) Terps? What are terps? Bit of terps. Yeah, Yeah, mate, fixes everything. (laughs) No. Methadine? (laughs) Sammy? Yes, Sammy. Was heat one of those things or was that yes. just implied with the manure? Okay. Heat, that is true. <laughs> and so there's one thing left, which is an alcoholic kind of thing that is not Terps. Uh, the last ingredient was vinegar. Ah, uh, 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 I would have got that. Yeah, it was there. So, Jez, you get half a point and your other two, I'm giving you nothing. That was yeah. a waste of time from you guys. According to me, what is the ninth planet? Oh, Jez. Yes, Jez. Planet Hollywood. Yes! Yeah, nice. Not bad milkshakes, but (laughs) went out of business pretty quickly. (laughs) I went to Planet Hollywood once in my life in in Dubai, and the only, like, Hollywood thing they had on there was Corey Feldman's jacket from License to Drive. (laughs) I was like, that's the most useless bit of fucking merchandise I've ever seen. They couldn't even find some knockoff material. Nothing, nothing. What do you put in the mouth of the dead to keep them dead? Jez. According to Ken. Yes, Jez. A brick. That is true. Yeah. I remember, it's like, do you break the jaw or do you get a smaller brick? Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) What is the French word used by Ken that means something more than pleasure? Broden. Yes, Broden. Jusson. Very good. Did you study French, mate? What I did is I remember Zhu, like, because of the, like, you know, like from MasterChef. Gotcha. And then I, and then I just sort of made French noise after it. <laughs> it worked. <Jusant. laughs> yeah. It's very good. A Plutonian year is 248 Earth years. If a Martian from Pluto is exactly 10 years old, how old are they in Earth years? Jezza. Yes, Jez. Uh, 250,000. 248,000. <laughs> Do you mean you've put a zero on the end of 248, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. So Times by 10. Isn't, doesn't, isn't that what maths is? Yeah. Add so a that, zero. So if you put a zero on the 248, that would be? 2,480. Two, two, Yes, that's correct. Full points. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I can see it. You showed your workings. Good stuff. Can I ask a, can I ask a technical question related to that question? If you're asking why would, why would a Martian come from Pluto, yeah. well, guys, that's what they're called, okay? So okay. that's just a fact. All it right. just makes complete sense, Sammy, all right? I you don't know them. You've never met one, all right? Yeah, yeah. That is fair. I, I am being unreasonable. <laughs> Guys, after all that, it was very close. But she has done it again, Geraldine Hickey. Yeah. I, don't, I don't accept that. I don't accept that. Literally can't believe, mm. can't believe I, I won on a maths question. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go, mate. That's what true champions do. They pull it out when no one thought they could. It's great. That's, thanks very much. Um, Congratulations, Jez. Thanks to all the half, half points that I got. And because I think that really tipped me over the edge, getting half points. Despite the fact that we've got one winner and two disgruntled people, I just want to say thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, Sammy, what are you up to, mate? Uh, anything to promote? No. <laughs> of course, that you're, always on, you're always on the socials, though. Yeah, I am on the socials, uh, at Sammy Shah, S-M-I-S-H-A-H, on Twitter and Insta and all that stuff. But other than that, no, I'm just a working man working for a living these days. Jess, people can hear you on Triple R? 
On Triple R 102.7 or rr.org.au every weekday morning from 6 to 9 on The Breakfasters. Um, also, all the social media, just at Geraldine Hickey. Can people, if they're interstate uh, outside of Melbourne, can they stream Triple R? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and also internationally. Just, yeah, it's all on rr.org.au. It is an institution here in Melbourne, and if you do live interstate, it is well worth listening. It's a great radio station. And Broden, um, this little Netflix show that you've got going on, mate. Yeah, we've got a Netflix series called Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun. A hundred percent. In all honesty, for all the listeners, get on board and get onto your socials as well, because you're so regularly you're putting out clips, sketches, all this content on on your Facebook, yeah. Instagram. It's all there. I'd also like to thank today's experts, master painter David Cole, talking about the origins of paint pigment. And don't forget to look out for his book, Chromatopia, which I believe, Sammy, you have. I had because my daughter took my copy and now won't give it back because it's a really (laughs) cool book. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like I'm genuinely going to buy it because it looks uh, as interesting as it is visually impressive. So it's well worth picking that up. And thanks to Professor Rachel Webster talking about dwarf planets or, well, not really a planet, which is Pluto. And I think we're all going to be sitting in on a lecture next year. Is that right? Yeah, I'll see you guys there. Oh, yeah. Sounds cool. And Professor Ken Gelder talking about vampires. He's published many books. The ones about vampires you should seek out are Reading the Vampire and his most recent New Vampire Cinema. We look forward to joining you next time on There Will Be a Test. See ya. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to the episode as much as we enjoyed making it. You know, the best way you can show your appreciation is to rate and review us. And to inspire you, I thought I'd read out some recent reviews. There's this one that just says, yes, with an exclamation mark in capital letters. You've got my attention. Great fusion of brain and belly laughs from boring academic five stars. Well, you're not boring now. You've listened to our podcast, am I right? And this one, we laughed, we learned. Fun cast, interesting, informative, educational, and funny. Smiley face. Oh, that's nice. From Back by Popular Demand. Five stars. Great handle. This podcast was produced by Jed Wood with the invaluable assistance of talent coordinator, Dr. Michael McDermott. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, and we pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Dave Thornton, and catch you next time where there will be a test.